Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Welcome to episode 96. Today's guest is the author of Tuning Up, a book about improving performance and reducing stress in advertising and marketing. I think this chat is going to be particularly interesting for you if you're finding the pressure and stress of working in an agency unmanageable or you're responsible for creating a positive agency environment in which your team can thrive. David and I cover a lot of ground, including why he describes the relationship between the agency the client and the client's procurement department as the triangle of doom. He also explains his signature relationship diagnostic tool, the Meekle Matrix, that essentially helps you pinpoint the heart of the problem with any relationship and also how this diagnostic tool can help you in practical ways in your agency. I highly recommend you reading this book. For me, it's been a huge eye-opener. It's very engaging. And with no further ado, let's go over to the intro now. Well, today I am delighted to say that I've got David Meikle with me. David is a renowned business and marketing consultant. He's also an agency intermediary and author and is celebrated as a top thinker in advertising and marketing operations globally. Before establishing his consultancy in 2009, David held senior roles at Gray and Ogilvy and Mather in London. He also served as a group managing director of Ogilvy Russia in the early 2000s. His first book, How to Buy a Gorilla, received extensive acclaim. It presented an innovative model addressing conflicts among marketing, procurement and ad agencies. David's second book, Tuning Up, was released in September 2023, where we are now, and has already been lauded as the lens through which everyone in marketing, advertising and marketing procurement should examine and design their relationships. David, finally, I get you on the podcast. A very warm welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted you're here, David, because as we spoke just before we started recording, your second book, Tuning Up, has had a huge impact on me already. And I admittedly am halfway through, but it is just already made an impact. So let's first of all talk about your first book, David. So for those who are unfamiliar with your work and or the UK advertising landscape, what is a gorilla? And why do clients want to buy one? <laughs> okay, good place to start. So when I well, I finished my time in Russia, I'd, I'd really kind of had enough there and, I'd, and I'd, I wanted to move back to the UK with my wife. So when I came back, I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do. And I was examining the dynamic that seemed to be emergent, if not fully established, between marketing agencies and marketing procurement, marketing procurement being an increasingly dominant newcomer. And I suppose when I was beginning that journey, I was having a conversation with Debbie Morrison, who at the time was head of consultancy at ISBAR, the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers. And she was talking about the new business market. This is around about 2010. And I said, so what's the new business market look like at the moment? She said, well, everybody wants to buy a gorilla or they want to buy a meerkat. The meerkat reference is obvious to the very famous compare the market, compare the meerkat campaign. But the Cadbury Gorilla was an ad that had been created by Fallon 
for the standard Cadbury chocolate bar. And it was the most extraordinary piece of work because you can read in the in the introduction of, of How to Buy a Gorilla, uh, basically people were sat watching Big Brother and suddenly they were looking at the face of a gorilla when it cut to an ad break. And they could hear this sort of eerie introduction of Phil Collins in the air tonight in the background. And as the camera pulled back, it revealed that this gorilla was sat behind a drum kit and then suddenly broke into that amazing drum break. And everybody was just sitting there thinking, what the hell am I watching here? And the only hint was there was a purple background, which was the Cadbury purple. And essentially, it was just a a gigantic metaphor for this is how sensational it feels to eat Cadbury's chocolate. It was a breakthrough campaign. It was thoroughly original. It was engaging. People didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, what a great metaphor for that kind of campaign. And my observation to Debbie Morrison at the time was, well, it's all well and good that everybody wants to buy a gorilla, but the problem is that they don't know how. Because you can't use standard ideas of best practice and get that kind of work. You have to create horses for courses in ways of working, ways of paying, ways of incentivizing, and in the management of responsibility and control, which is something I'm sure we'll come on to, between clients and their agencies. Very interesting. And do you think the reason that you were so fascinated by this dynamic was because of your own experience? Were you faced with an opportunity to perhaps have a guerrilla type campaign and it was thwarted? Or what was the drive behind you wanting to go deeper into this? Well, I had a couple of observations. I mean, it was interesting. The Russia opportunity was an opportunity to see agency running through the lens of the responsibility of management rather than the responsibility of delivery. So when you're running it as a business, then you have a different set of priorities than if you're running a particular account. So I did have the opportunity to observe how more clearly the contrast between how certain clients behaved and the way certain clients paid, remunerated, incentivized the agency. And my overriding observation was it is too frequent that clients do not pay or reward or incentivize agencies and do not work with agencies in ways that are consistent with the value that they want to elicit from agencies. They use a book of best practice, or at worst, they use a set of precedents, or they kind of do what they think is right for the smaller organizations. And agencies under those circumstances do their very best to do the best work, but it's not necessarily in the conditions that are right for it. And this is one of the things that inspired the chapter in How to Buy a Gorilla. Chapter four is about client agency relationships, and that's what morphed into tuning up. The overriding observation of that is that there is a diminishing return of value from an agency as client control increases. There's a point at which when a client controls the agency to the nth degree, that actually what the agency can do for that client diminishes in value. So if you imagine a control freak client telling the agency specifically what to do in terms of, you know, how to art direct an ad or whatever, then the agency's value contribution becomes limited by the skill of the client, as opposed to being limited by the skills and abilities and experience of the people in the agency. Does that make sense? Absolutely love that. And just by the way, talking of value, how much money did Fallon make for Cabri with that? Oh, 
Yeah, that's a it's a fairly inert market, but I believe, if memory serves me right, that the following month sales were up five percent in volume, which is wow. phenomenal for that category. Absolutely yeah. huge. That kind of work is often so well received that people genuinely want to reciprocate by buying the product. Almost a vote of thanks, I believe, that they kind of say, you know, yeah, I should get one of those because that was brilliant. It's funny how there's certain kinds of advertising that I believe work that way. I mean, obviously, they don't do it with cars, but with a chocolate bar. I I think I must have been one of those people that were, sorry to admit it, but watching Big Brother when that ad first came on, because it was, as you described, it smacked you between the eyes. And it was like, what is this about? It was absolutely astounding. Okay, so we've talked about this diminishing value when the client's involved and controlling things. Do you think that's why this worked? Was Fallon given more of a free reign and was the Cadbury client letting them lead this? Because it was, I think you described in the book or I've I've seen a speech where you were talking about actually how did they get that ad over the line? That's, it's a really good question. Uh, Phil Rumble was the marketing director at the time and it wasn't just his faith in the agency. It was his vehement defence of the agency's work internally that almost cost him his job because the ad had failed the first round of quantitative research. It then went into a second round of quantitative research, which it kind of barely scraped, if that, at which point the higher-ups in Cadbury were saying, well, this is dead. This is just a waste of money. You need to can it. And actually what he did is he burnt a load of CDs with the minute and a half version of the ad on it and gave copies to the board and told the board members, take these home, don't explain it's an ad, don't explain what it is, just stick it in the DVD in front of your family and play it and look at them, don't look at the video, look at them. And that's when he finally convinced them to let him have the control to run the ad. So it was a battle. He's a bit of a hero, isn't he, Phil Rumbold? Because any client listening to this thinks, you know, if the board, you know, we've already had it fail at research stage and the board is saying, well, you know, it's down to you. That's a big risk, isn't it, for your own job? It is. But if you think about the actual business risk to Cadbury, it would only have been if there were really negative connotations that it wouldn't be worth testing. And I think that, I mean, the the issue of risk is a big part of the whole how to buy a gorilla framework, which is the first thing that you need to do is identify what your risk profile is and what your appetite is for risk creatively, because creativity is risk. I mean, it was Drucker who said all profit is derived from risk. And it is because there's a necessary transition from asset to an investment to a return on that investment to derive profit. So the question is, what's your appetite for risk? And there are very predictable ways of making a return on investment, which are, dare I say, formulaic. And then there are unconventional ways of deriving a return on investment. So if you take, for example, Procter & Gamble, I think there's a case study in one of the, I can't remember which book it's in now, but in one of my two books, I think it's the second one, there's a case study for a shampoo brand that a friend of mine worked on that was a very famous anti-dandruff shampoo, that when it went into market was the most effective 
shampoo commercial this company had ever run. So they immediately took it off air. And they immediately took it off air because it was slaughtering their other shampoo brands. So there are reasons why some clients, such as portfolio clients, Unilever's, Procter Gamble's, will want a predictable, modest return on investment rather than a breakthrough return on investment. And therefore, they won't buy a gorilla. They're not in the market for gorillas because for them, gorillas represent different kinds of risks and risks that are only apparent on a business level and on a portfolio level rather than apparent on a brand level. And what tends to happen is, and this is where agencies come under some criticism, is agencies can be too myopic to the broader business context, rather they just focus on the brand business problem. So insightful, David. Honestly, I could talk to you all day. The book has just got me captivated already. And it, I'm you, so glad. <laughs> oh, you've you've just, you know, throwing in an insight around, you know, the difference between a portfolio client and a, you know, a client that maybe is a single brand. But let's go back to what you did lay out in the first book, which sure. was you introduced the concept of this dysfunctional triangle of doom, <laughs> which I absolutely <laughs> love, between marketing, procurement, and yes. the agency. Can you yes. explain why? I'm sure okay. the listeners are already coming to their own ideas. but So at best, it's a triangle of potentially divergent interests. And if your interests are divergent in this triangle, and the stakeholders in this triangle are then charged with creating something by collaboration, it's pretty much a recipe for disaster. So if we examine each corner of the triangle for a second, agencies are in the business of making money and building their own reputation. They want to retain their clients and they want to do good work for their clients and they have a good idea of what good work is. As we've talked about, some clients use ideas of best practice or at least have levels of control over the agency, which are inconsistent with the agency being able to do its best work. They have different ideas about creativity per se. They have different ideas about distinctiveness of advertising. They have certain rules about creative ideas. You mustn't show the consumer as an idiot, blah, blah, blah. There are all of these conventions, many of which some of the most successful advertising have broken. You only have to look at Hamlet's photo booth to see, you know, there's nothing wrong with making the consumer look like an idiot to have a very successful campaign. Oh, yeah. So you have divergent interests there, potentially, although you have a shared goal. Then you have the relationship between marketing and procurement. Now, procurement are often tasked with, well, they, they usually tasked with two different agendas. One is saving money, and the other is mitigating risk. Now, the problem with saving money is that marketing, from every piece of expenditure on a shelf wobbler up to the office space that they occupy as a marketing team within their organization is an investment. There isn't a single part of marketing that isn't an investment. There are parts of marketing investment that would be what, what I would call hard costs, such as printed material or promotional gifts, for example, whereby if you can control the quality and keep the quality as a constant, then to reduce the price and reduce the cost of that would be a naturally sensible thing to do. However, a vast portion of marketing expenditure in agency fees, be they media agencies or creative agencies, is spent on people and the engagement of people to solve problems with unlimited possible solutions. 
And if you're asking people to solve problems with unlimited possible solutions, you're investing in them. And the problem with saving from investments is you're not saving, you're just divesting, you're just reducing your investment. The results of reducing an investment are you either diminish your return or you increase your risk. But the problem with a lot of marketing procurement, and it's getting a little bit better, but it's still a prevalent problem, is that they don't have a stake in the performance of marketing. They just have a mandate to save money. Now, you've therefore got a conflict between marketing and procurement, oftentimes, where one is trying to protect its investment and the other is trying to diminish it. Even if marketing procurement is saying, yes, but we're we're saving you that money so that you can reinvest it, that's suggesting that marketing procurement are better judges of the right investment levels against any budget header than marketing is, which I would refute as very, very unlikely. So then you have the third relationship, which is between marketing and agencies. And that's a very straightforward relationship. Once or twice a year, procurement put on their crash helmet, pick up their baseball bat and go and negotiate with the agency. And the agencies try and get out of a fetal position so that they can sit at the table. But usually they end up in a fetal position, rupturing money, lying on the floor, begging for mercy. So I use an extreme to make a point, but there are often times when actually procurement's default belief is that agencies are making too much money and agencies general positions are if you want us to be in business tomorrow we need to have a degree of profitability which is not unreasonable for us to achieve as a business but is also in your interest such that we're stable organizations that can sustain an unpredictable account loss so in that triangle you therefore have three parties with at best divergent, at worst, actually mutually exclusive interests who are then charged with managing an investment. Now, if that investment is just the creation of an ad, that's fine. But it's not just the ad. It's the investment that they're responsible for is the ad, the money that's then invested behind that ad in media, and then the return on investment that's expected from that. So actually, it's the overall corporate health of the client, if it's dependent upon sales, that they're negotiating over. Hinges on. I can understand why you've described it as the triangle of doom now that you've so succinctly <laughs> explained each party's kind of raison d'etre. You said something really key in that, and it's probably going to lead us on to talk more mm-hmm. about your current book, which was procurement, marketing procurement don't have any stake in the performance of the marketing campaign. Can you talk a bit more about that? Most people in marketing procurement are responsible for categories, and then against those categories, they are incentivized to achieve a certain savings target whilst mitigating the risk and ensuring the quality of what it is that they buy. So there's a hierarchy of need. So the basic hierarchy, the lowest level is, does the company that we're employing do what it, it needs to do? Then the question is, does it do that of a sufficient quality for our needs? Then there's a the question of whether or not it's going to supply the service that we need. Then, and only then, should there be a question of cost. And then after that, if you need to differentiate further, is there any added value that we can elicit from this supplier? That's what procurement should be doing. Now, if they have skin in the game, if you like, if they were incented to manage marketing procurement whilst at the same time they are equally incented by the return on marketing investment, I dare say that their procurement strategies would be slightly different. 
because what they tend to do is leave the determination, a lot of the determination of quality to marketing, and therefore they have free reign in determining what they believe is cost and what I call investment, which is one of the reasons why at the, at the last, I think it was at the Alliance of Independent Agencies talk, Mike Lander and I talked about, you know, just change your language from cost to investment. Don't ever provide a cost estimate. Provide an investment recommendation. In fact, I was having lunch with a, an agency CEO the other day. He said, you and your bloody recommendations, all I get in front of me now are investment recommendations. I say it's a cost estimate, isn't it? It's a cost <laughs> estimate. No, they've got it absolutely right. It's an investment recommendation, and that's exactly what you should call it. So change is happening, I'm going to say. Well, that's good to hear, and I'd love to know more about how you see those changes happening. And so what you're effectively saying is the procurement's role, they get involved in this sort of cost-saving exercise at the front end, but they're not ultimately responsible for the growth of the brand, or they don't get recompensed on the back end of the outcome of whatever they have been procuring. Is is that a fair assessment? Exactly. In most instances, in some more enlightened organisations, marketing procurement work to marketing. They they don't report to finance, they report to the marketing director. In which case, all of the roles which they have, um, well, to start with, they can manage investments rather than costs, and they can be involved in quality assurance, or all of the things like continuity, governance, data propriety. There are all sorts of things that they can do, and they can do really well, and there's an important skill set for marketing, which we haven't spoken about in fairness, and we should recognize so they can do all of that and they are working for a team which is collectively responsible for a return on investment so that's a much more effective model than one in which they report to a cpo who's also responsible for sourcing raw materials or you know steel from china or, or whatever or to a finance director who's much more bottom line focused yeah really good point rory sutherland described your second book tuning up as follows he said What took me three decades and a series of panic attacks to understand, David will teach you in a few hours. Obviously, what he's referring to here in large part is the book containing the powerful Meikle Matrix. So first of all, why did you create this matrix? Well, actually, I blame Rory. I was I was having a meeting with him and a former colleague of mine called Nick Ford, who was a um, latterly a commercial director for WPP. And I was sharing with them the thinking that would eventually become the How to Buy a Gorilla strategic framework, which involves a number of business models. This is why it makes people's heads hurt, because there are four or five business models that correlate to one another to create the framework, which is How to Buy a Gorilla. But marketing is complex, so sometimes it makes your head hurt. Anyway, I was sharing with Rory my insight that there is a diminishing return on control between clients and agencies. He said, oh, that's really interesting. Do some more on that. I really like that. So inspired as I was, as many people are when they meet with Rory, I got on the tube on the way home and I thought, well, how can I do that? And I love a four-box matrix. So I created a matrix with control on the vertical axis on the left and responsibility on the horizontal axis. And on the vertical axis, it had high control at the top and low control at the bottom. And on the horizontal axis, it had low control on the left and high responsibility on the right and low responsibility on the left, which then created four boxes. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. 
how would those four boxes feel? And I knew from my own experience and from what the introduction of Tuning Up explains is the epiphany that I had, that if you have high responsibility and low control, it's a recipe for stress. It's actually a clinical definition of stress. And if you think about anything that stresses you at all, you can pretty much identify very quickly that you have a certain interest or responsibility and that you're not in control of achieving it. So that's the bottom right box. The top right box is when you have control and responsibility in commensurate measure, and they're both high. So that's when you're in flow, and that's when you've got... If you imagine those sessions where you feel wired in, you feel in the zone, where you realise that you've been writing for three hours and not one, that's when you're in flow. So that's based on the flow concept from the Hungarian, I think he was Hungarian psychologist, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote about the flow concept. You then have two other conditions. One is when you have low responsibility and low control, and that's when you're pretty kind of disengaged and you've you've got to a condition of either philosophical, well, it's just a chore and therefore I've got to do it, or you've got to a place of learned hopelessness, which is, well, this is just what my life now sums up to, and you know I just have to do it, but I, I have things outside of work that satisfy me. And the last one is is actually a place where I think Rory would confess that he resides, which is where you have low responsibility but high control. So I think Rory has confessed himself that he has a pretty great job insofar as he gets to do what he wants. He gets to do lots of different talks and lots of different places, but he's also vice chairman of Ogilvy London. Now, all of that revenue goes into Ogilvy, but he gets to do pretty much what he wants in order to achieve it which is one of the better models within what I call the non-stick box. I had originally called it Teflon, but apparently it's not a well enough known brand name to say that it's non-stick. But anyway, non-stick, you can kind of do what you want because trouble doesn't stick to you. And there are two types of people in there. There is either the benevolent genius, which is our friend Rory, who can go around casting pearls of wisdom and inspiring people and helping people. But it's also where the tyrant resides, which is the unaccountable creative director who decides to throw all the work out the night before the pitch and make everyone work through the night. So the Meekle Matrix was created by Rory because I, I brought that back to him and walked him through it. He said, that's great. It's the Meekle Matrix. So he named it. <laughs> wow. So that's how it came about. And OK, so th- first of all, I have to say that it hit me between the eyes when I started reading this um, because... I'll just give you a very brief example of why Mm. it was relevant for me and it hit me was because when I was at Publicist Life Brands as general manager, I had all the responsibility of running an agency. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I didn't control the new business pipeline. Mm -hmm. So if my group leads said, we've got a UK pitch and you've been chosen to lead it, it was regardless of how the business was currently doing. So the fact that we were having problems with a current client, or I just lost a couple of team members. So we were people down. There was no control over me saying, no, we're not going to lead that pitch because we can't right now. It was just, so I was in high stress a lot of the time. So as it applies, because it, it was so relevant to me, and there are so many numerous ways that you describe in the book that it can be used. 
ultimately, because our audience are agency owners and account managers, Mm -hmm. what's the benefit of understanding the Meekle matrix? I'm sure as people are listening, they are perhaps putting individuals in their life in those boxes. Mm. But what do you think is the benefit for them to understand this? Well, it's interesting what you said about your time in publicist, because when I took on Ogilvy Russia, I was in exactly the opposite position. So the agency, when I joined it, was an affiliate. It was privately owned by a chap called Leonid Shutov, who I had met a few times. And I met on the 23rd of November 2003 in my hotel, the night before I was going to start work on the 24th of November. And I said to him, so... I guess we'll see as we go along what kind of decisions you're happy for me to take and what you want to be involved in. And he said, no, all of them are yours from tomorrow. I'll be there if you need me, but you choose. You have to do what you think is right. It's Basically, it's your train set. Run it. And (laughs) great. (laughs) So obviously, I was delighted by that. But by way of an example, and this is a case study I used, I think, to illustrate the Meekle Matrix in How to Buy a Gorilla, was that I had a, a client services director who then became the head of what was going to be our direct offering, Ogilvy One. And I came to him with a pitch opportunity one time which for a big brand, which was called Melina, which is the equivalent of Nectar, if you like. And Melina is, means raspberry in, in Russian, so you would collect raspberries if you like. And I said to him, we've got this great opportunity. Do you want to do the pitch for it? He said, we'll die. We are absolutely falling over with work at the moment. We've got this for Pfizer. We've got this for IBM. We've got this for Amex. There was just, he said, there's there's just way too much. I said, okay, let me ask a different question. Are you going to hit your revenue numbers this year? And he said, I will hit them and then some. Mm. And I said, fine, we'll just decline then. Because the alternative was that I tell him, as many agency leaders do, you don't like it? Well, start liking it because you're doing it. But then what they don't do is take responsibility for the outcomes as a result of that, which are, you know, failing mental health, exhaustion, incumbent client dissatisfaction because they're being neglected, all number of different consequences for making that decision. So whereas in publicity you were mandated to do something, I was in a position to do exactly the opposite and have constructive conversations. So you asked how agencies should use the Meekle Matrix and why. Well, that's an example of how I used it and I used with all of my management team. So as I built a management team, because when I got there, I didn't have one. I built it on the basis of, okay, so if you're my HR director, you've got responsibility for this, that, and the other, and you've got control of delivering this, that, and the other. And I remember when I interviewed a a woman called Victoria Mizutina for a position of recruiter because I, I needed to get bodies on seats. And she came in, clearly, she was way, way better than a recruiter. She'd be working for PwC or or, or somebody like that in Russia. So by the end of the interview, I'd asked her a whole number of questions and much broader questions about HR, which kind of surprised her. And I said, okay, so I don't want to give you the job as a recruiter, but I am interested in hiring you as my HR director. Of course, she was delighted. So contract signed, she's employed, and then she comes to me and says, and I need $10,000. I said, okay, help me with that. She said, well, I need $10,000 because we need to have a talent database. 
And I said, well, can you not buy talent databases? He said, well, you can buy shitty ones, but I need a good one. And if I need a good one, I need to build it, and that'll cost $10,000. So again, the little conversation in my head is, if I've given you responsibility for this, then I need to give you control over the means by which to do so. So here's your $10,000. And six months later, she was presenting to Ogilvy Europe's HR convention the database that she'd built and they were all sat there saying wow i wish we'd done that this is what we need (laughs) wow so the two examples you've given are from like an agency leadership position yes so would you say to agency leaders that are listening to this you know the ultimate goal is to put your team into flow which means giving them the high responsibility and the high control would you say that that's the ultimate it's a conversation So you have to gauge what responsibility people are ready to take and want to take. And sometimes you have to push them to take a little bit more and to take a little bit more control. And you have to reassure them that you are there to help support them and that you are there so that if something goes wrong, they're not hung out to dry. And it's very important that when you say, okay, so you've got responsibility and you've got control for this, you're doing this in a positive way. There are lots of people who use responsibility and control by saying when they lose in an argument, they say, okay, well, it's on you. That's the least constructive way to do it. I think Intel as an organization had a a, a motto, which is disagree, then commit. So you need to agree a course of action. The person with responsibility needs to determine that course. And then you need to commit to it and you need to support it. And one of the things that that means for a leader is often it means accepting that People who work for you might not do things the way that you would have done them. But that's okay because that's their responsibility and therefore it needs to be within their control to do that. You can advise, you can suggest, but you should not mandate because they may have reasons that you don't understand and will never understand about why they want to do something differently. But it's a way of framing that old cliched word of empowerment in ways that are much more clear and more motivating. And I love what you said about start with the conversation, because not everybody, you know, you can talk about having responsibility and control, Mm. but do they want that? Are they ready for that? So having that negotiation up front is important. Talk to me about where you see this being most relevant for agency account managers. So when they're looking at the Meekle matrix, give us some scenarios, examples of how they can see this or use this for their own gain. So, for example, if you're in a negotiation with your client about creative work and they are advising you to do things against your recommendation, then you could be framing that there is a consequence of that, which is, and one I can only paraphrase for efficiency now, one has to be delicate in the way that you negotiate these kind of conversations. But I was in a conversation with a confectionery client, not Cadbury, with another confectionery client, and we had done, I mean, we'd been put through the mill on this. Now, it was reasonable that we'd been put through the mill. They had little reason to believe in the agency until the agency had proven itself a while. But we had proven ourselves and we'd done lots of different creative routes and we were now on creative route 12 version 15 or something and the marketing director said and now i want to change it to do this and i said look we're gonna have to kind of draw a line on this because we can continue to keep doing what you want but this isn't our work anymore this is your work now and therefore if you want to agree that we'll get a b grading 
for performance at the end of the year. We'll just do what you want. Now, I paraphrase what was a very, very delicate conversation about saying, if you are going to control this work, then you're going to have to be responsible for it, because currently I have an interest in its effectiveness. And this particular client had a a, a reputation somewhat akin to a velociraptor. So, <laughs> so proceed with caution. I don't encourage any listeners to kind of run out there and start saying, yes, but in the Meekle matrix, if you're taking control, then you've got to have responsibility. It doesn't work quite as straightforwardly as that. But the point is that you can frame, to start with, you can frame and see yourself what's going on. And secondly, it isn't necessarily a given that if you concede to a client's demand that you should remain responsible for its effectiveness. I remember an instance where I was asked to attend a board meeting of a UK client for whom our agency had developed an international ad. And I didn't know what the agenda was, but the agenda turned out to have been, wasn't this a tragic waste of money? Because the ads had run, there were a number of them, millions of pounds had been spent behind them, and the dial didn't move. I said, well, there's two things that I would observe there. One is we don't know what the result would have been had we not run these ads, which may have been a significantly worse business performance than you've had, because advertising isn't necessarily just for growth. It's sometimes for maintaining market share. So that's X. We don't know what that is. But Y is this isn't the work that I recommended we make. This is the work that, despite my recommendations, was made on the instruction of your global boss. So if you have a problem with the performance of the work, it would be unfair for that to be a conversation with me when I didn't advocate it. Now, not everybody's going to have the confidence to have that conversation. And like I say, if you're an account manager or an account director in an agency and you're faced in a similar situation, escalate the issue and frame it in that way to help whoever it is who might want to have that conversation. But these are high-level pushbacks, and they're not things to be taken easily or lightly, rather. So be careful. But there is an overriding point here, which is it is irrefutably unjust. It is irrefutably unfair to hold somebody accountable for something over which they had no control. It would be like me blaming you for the weather. And it's just it's blatantly preposterous. And what the Meekle Matrix does by framing that is it allows you to recognize that it's preposterous and begin to have the conversations that recognize that in ways that are hopefully constructive and non-confrontational. But that's another whole set of skills and disciplines to execute that without damaging relationships. I think several things. First of all, I think a lot of account managers are probably standing up clapping when you said your piece. (laughs) Um, Also, great catch on the back end to say, look, my advice to you is, first of all, like monitor how this account is transpiring. You know, if the client's being ultra control freaky and you're around 15, there's a problem. And if someone needs to have that conversation with the client, if it's not you, then someone else needs to. So you need to escalate it. And then the other thing I wanted to pick up on was the fact that the Meekle Matrix is such a powerful diagnostic tool. And actually, just before we came on air, you talked about that is the next phase of the development and sort of evolution of the matrix. Is that right? 
Yes, yes. It's very exciting. I'm working with a large network media agency at the moment to try to develop an online diagnostic tool for the Meekle Matrix to be used such that by completing a questionnaire, any member of their organisation would be able to plot their relationship and the amount of time they spend on that relationship as a proportion of their working life against the Meekle Matrix. So whether it's done by the accounts they work on or by their internal relationships or by both is yet to be determined. But essentially, by asking a bunch of questions about the things that normally would influence control or normally would influence responsibility and gauging whether or not you feel like you have that anywhere between never and all the time, you can gauge, theoretically, you can gauge whether or not someone is spending a majority of their time in stress or in flow or in nonstick or in the last box is called toil because that's where you do your chores, you toil away your chores. So, yes, that's really exciting. And the agency team is very excited by the prospect of that, as am I. And, yeah, I look forward to developments of that in the new year. Hopefully we'll go to a beta in January or February, which already a number of other agencies have expressed an interest in <laughs> When they said, what have you been up to and how's the book going? And I talk about this diagnostic and there are lots of people who are saying, yeah, I mean, it's a great way for the agency's management to be able to see the overall health of the agency's people. It's a great way to quickly identify anyone who's in crisis for whom they have a duty of care to make sure that they get the support that they need either in work or out of work, whatever kind of support, because that's something that agencies are getting better at, but is still notoriously difficult to identify. And it's a great way of, you know, you take the readout for that and you put it as a stimulus for your performance appraisal and you explore with your line manager and a performance appraisal what's going on in these relationships. Why is this one in flow? And why is this one in stress? Why is this relationship in toil? Have you just given up on that one? And it very quickly creates very rich conversation. Perhaps we can have you back on when it's all live and launched, because I agree with you. I think it's going to be such a fundamental tool for agencies. David, I'm conscious of time. I've taken up so much of your time already. I just have one big last question before I ask you where people can contact you for more conversations. It's just your thoughts really on how you see relationships between marketing, procurement and agencies evolving in the future. Mm. I wish I could be more optimistic. I think part of the problem remains in procurement. If your listeners don't already listen to the 20% Marketing Procurement podcast, I would encourage them to. It is hosted by Blair Enns and Leah Power. Blair is the author of The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, and Leah is a very experienced agency person who now works for the ICA, the Institute of Communication Agencies in Canada, I think it is, or I'm not sure what the ICA stands for. Anyway, and it's funny, it's the marketing procurement proficient professionals that they have guesting on their show who are the most damning about the future and about the fact that they, in their enlightened states of how marketing procurement needs to work versus conventional procurement, they estimate how few there are of them. Now, it's not that hard to change that kind of behaviour, but at the same time, I've never seen university degrees in procurement. I've never known anybody say that they want to be a buyer or in procurement 
from a career perspective, it tends to be a direction that certain people have a leaning toward. And the other observation I shared, and it was a question really that I shared with a procurement professional the other day was, do you find that people who are naturally competitive gravitate to procurement? And I would love to research this and I would love to find out, but my feeling is that people who gravitate to procurement, and I know many, generally like a zero-sum game. They like to win, and to win somebody else needs to lose. And that is not conducive to investment management, which is much more about a two-sum game. So I think there is a fundamental problem in that respect. So let me give you an example. When I did my first big creative pitch for the post office, I worked with a procurement professional called Adrian Crony. He was utterly brilliant. I mean, incredibly smart, absolutely got it. We needed to manage compliance with uh, government procurement protocols, but at the same time, we needed to manage an investment. And I wasn't even pushing against an open door. The door was open. It was a wonderful experience. And there have been procurement professionals who get it or who just know that it's best to stand out of the way. But there are others who I think just in their nature, it's in their nature, want to win something. And that's not conducive to marketing investment. And it's also quite difficult against what is a service mentality, which comes from agencies. So agencies want to give and please and satisfy. And you have a different dynamic on the other side, which is wanting to win and take. And that's just not a very good combination. So I I think broadly speaking, there are some issues there. I think it is getting better. I think that we are able to equip, despite what might be latent leanings like I've just described, we are able to equip agencies and marketers and even, dare I say, some people in marketing procurement with the knowledge and the tools and the arguments to suggest that there are better ways of working. And there have been some successes, but they tend to be one at a time. So we're not going to see a big sea change. I think that we would do well to advise and to speak more directly to the finance community. And I think that we would do well to speak to the city about how advertising works and about long-term investments and returns rather than short-term, because most of everything is driven by the city telling finance directors that they need to deliver EBITDA and then that goes on to procurement and then that cuts marketing and then you know we're back into the same cycle again. So if we were going to cut the serpent's head off, we'd go to the city and say, you need to wise up about how advertising works. Other than that, it's a process of attrition, which is done by training, reading books, sharing podcasts, doing all of the things that we're doing, we are making ground. I mean, I think Blair cited me as one of the first people to identify this triangle of doom, which he then wanted to copyright as a name. (laughs) (laughs) Typical Blair. (laughs) But there are now many more on it, and he's a great example. So I think we will get there. And agencies' best defence against circumstances which are not conducive to getting the best value from them is education. And so the more that they can spend on training or reading a book, I mean, that's what transformed my career 25 years ago is I started reading books. 100% agree with you, David. And to that point, 
Where can people buy the book? Where can people talk to you about? Because you're talking about advice, consultancy. You're in the center of that. You're at the forefront of providing that guidance. So who ideally would you like to hear from that's been listening to this? And where's the best place to reach you? Oh, I'll talk to anybody. Right. That's what I love to hear. I ought to to be slightly more discerning. So (laughs) anyone can find me on LinkedIn, M-E-I-K-L-E, because otherwise you won't find me, David Meikle. So do find me on LinkedIn, do connect, do ask questions. I usually can answer in one way or another, but it would be great to grow the network. I am doing a book tour at the moment whereby basically agencies bulk buy a bunch of books, not as many as you'd fear. And then I can come do a free seminar for an hour and do questions and conversation thereafter. So I've got a number of those lined up. So they've already been very well received and and, and enthusiastically received. You can equally do the same for half day and full day training on tuning up, which is ready to go if anybody wants to to get going. I would suggest to agencies that if the whole principle of the Meekle Matrix and so on is new to you, and it most likely is, Make sure your management is trained before everybody else because they won't be ready for the conversation changes that may be coming down the road if they don't. And yes, so I'd be very happy to hear from them. And if there's longer term interest in things like the diagnostic, then that'll be coming from agency leaders and HR directors. Just get in touch. I'd love to have conversations with you and see how I can help. In terms of the book, you can get the book in hardback from tuningup.co.uk. If you've got any listeners from abroad, you can order the Kindle edition on Amazon or the paperback edition on Amazon. You can also get the paperback edition from the UK from my own website. But if you're absolutely convinced that you want to send Jeff Bezos into space again, then you can buy from Amazon in the UK too, of course. (laughs) That's so funny. David, thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been absolutely riveting all the way through. I know that this interview has gone on longer than I anticipated, but it's just, I couldn't cut it short. It's just so much of your wisdom and, and value that you've provided. So a massive thank you from me. And we'll put all of those links into the show notes. Thanks very much, Jenny. It's been absolutely my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with David and please go to his website tuningup.co.uk for more information about the book and also to road test a prototype of the diagnostic tool, the Meekle Matrix for yourself. And finally, if you're listening to this at the end of 2023 and you want to build a more entrepreneurial mindset in your account management role or your team, I'm enrolling right now for my 12-month training and mentoring program called Account Accelerator. I basically created the Account Accelerator because agency owners were telling me they knew their existing client accounts could grow further, but they needed their account managers to do three key things. First of all, act as trusted advisors rather than order takers so they understood their clients' business objectives and felt confident to have conversations about how the agency could help. Number two, spot upsell and cross-sell opportunities and follow them effectively so they could increase retention and generate new business opportunities with existing clients. And number three, ask insightful questions to uncover client challenges and feel confident presenting new ideas and asking for referrals and testimonials so they could help a strong sales pipeline of new leads and capture proof of happy clients. Now, I've had 30 years experience in account management and having trained account growth since 
2016, I know not all account managers have the skills, the experience or the mindset to deliver at this level. And many agencies don't have the right internal processes in place to support their account managers with account growth. But I believe with the right strategies, systems, processes and the support, your account managers can become more entrepreneurially minded, which could have a big impact on your agency's bottom line. So if all of this sounds in the least interesting, then go to my website, accountmanagementskills.com, where you can book a call, have a chat with me and see if this might be a good fit for you or a member of your team. I look forward to speaking to you on the next one.